107, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. I'm Morgan Shortle, and you're listening to the May 19th, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. pastime. But like many American institutions, it has a history of racial segregation. Join collections specialist Donna Ray Pearson and me as we take a look at a program from a 1950s baseball game between two teams from the Negro Leagues. And then for today's episode of Six Degrees of William Allen White, we asked you to connect Mr. White to British writer Douglas Adams, author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Was the Sage of Emporia secretly an extraterrestrial alien? Did he perhaps hitchhike here from Frogstar? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, take me out to the ball game. I don't care if I never get back, for it's rude, rude for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. Good morning, Donna Ray. Good morning, Morgan. And today we're going to talk about a program from the 1950s baseball game between the Kansas City Monarchs and the Indianapolis Clowns. Um, can you tell us about these two teams? I think I can. <laughs> um, the Kansas City Monarchs were really the longest-running franchise franchise in baseball history, the Negro Leagues meaning. Um, they operated in Kansas City, Missouri, and they were owned by a guy named J.L. Wilkinson. And the Indianapolis Clowns were also a professional baseball team, but they were part of the Negro American League, and they operated first in Cincinnati, and then they moved to Indianapolis in 1946. Great. And, oh, did you have oh. anything else to add to that? <laughs> well, I'm uh, just going to talk about the fact that they're called the Indianapolis Clowns. Yeah, I would like yeah. to hear about that. <laughs> well, there were some um, Negro League teams that had built in them little comic acts, So, but they were still serious baseball teams but Uh you got a little bit more out of the game because you know they might be batting with a huge baseball bat but still knocking it to the other end of the park or they'd be doing flips in the outfield (laughs) you know while they're catching the ball so it was like globetrotters yeah (laughs) kind of like a globetrotters (laughs) thing um so and it's kind of this program is interesting in the fact that It's one of the longest teams. The Kansas City Marducks was one of the longest-running teams in the first teams, and the Indianapolis Clowns were one of the last teams of the Negro Leagues that still operated. Great. And uh, when did the Negro Leagues begin? Um, Well, it's a little complicated story, Mm -hmm. but third time is a charm. Just keep (laughs) that in your head, okay? So the first attempt was... You know, I mean, baseball got segregated as early as about 1887, I think it was. So the first attempt um, to create a National League um, was with the National League colored baseball players. And that only lasted for 13 games. And uh-huh. it was just one season that was over. Then they tried again in 1910. But the most popular teams refused to participate. So that got squashed even before it got off the ground. <laughs> so 10 years later in 1920, there is a guy named Andrew Rube Foster. He was a former baseball player. Um, but he wanted, he dreamed of having an all black, black owned na- national baseball team league. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's what he set out to do. He got together with a bunch of people from across the country, the African-American press, even Elijah Scott, a guy from, a lawyer from Topeka. And they organized what was called the National Association of Colored Professional Baseball Clubs. That's a long acronym. Yes, it is. I had to say it very slowly. (laughs) And um, there are eight teams. And then they also created the Negro National League, which was kind of the umbrella organization. So that happened in 1920. And it basically allowed um, black owners and black players keep the economic wealth amongst themselves. How important were these teams to the African-American community? Well, they're very important. Um, the players were considered role models. I mean, this the, being a baseball player at this time was a status symbol, and it was a road to the middle class. Um, also, as I mentioned before, the economic impact, you know, 75% of the revenues generated from these games stayed within the African-American community. So they, so the owners also made a commitment to the community that was supporting them. They would put provide donations to different charities. Um, since they were paying the players, that those were those good economic jobs. I mean, for instance, there's a guy named George, the teacher, Sweat, from Humboldt, Kansas. Um, he actually was born and raised in Humboldt, Kansas, and he wanted to go to college. He did get a scholarship to Pittsburgh State University to Pittsburgh, yeah, university. But he still needed that other economic, he still needed more money to attend school. So while he was playing baseball, um, on the off off seasons, he also went to college. So um, baseball gave him the avenue to continue his college education. And in the off seasons, after he got his degree, he became a teacher in uh, sixth graders, I believe it was in Coffeyville, Kansas and um, kept the money, kept the cycle going, basically. So if he hadn't played baseball, he might not have been become a teacher. If he didn't become a teacher, he can provide education. You can see the whole cycle. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was good for the community. It and that, good. you said 75% so of the uh, monies mm-hmm. stay within the community, and that 25% was for charity and salaries, is that how that works? No, 25% might have been to pay like rental for different fees. Okay, just just fees for the... Yeah, the 75% that stayed in was recycled within the community itself. So they might have been paying to see the game, but um, at the same time, they also knew they were probably um, supporting a good cause. For instance, there was a team in Wichita, the um, Monrovians, on a regular basis, donated money to the children's home during when they were playing. Well, and and white people would come to the games as well, right? Exactly. So it was also bringing money in from outside of the community, too. Great. And and I I understand the game day activities were quite festive. Can you talk about those? Oh, they were. It was a a party. (laughs) I mean, you know, think of it. um, What is it when you do it in the parking lot? Tailgating. Tailgating. Yeah. Tailgating to an extreme, <laughs> basically. Um, they, they could have picnics beforehand. You know, it was a community event. It was a community affair. Um, there could be bands, um, parades leading up to them. You know, anybody could participate in these different games and, you know, enjoy them on a Sunday afternoon. So, yeah, it was a great time. 
And uh, how did the integration of baseball starting in 1947 affect the Negro Leagues? Well, I mean, by the time, by the time, this is another story. Okay. okay. But <laughs> well, by the time, you know, Jackie Robinson um, joined the Kansas City Monarchs in 1945, the White leagues, because you have to also remember while the Negro leagues were going on, there was also the parallel of right. white, you know, professional baseball going on too. So, um, but as the Negro leagues got stronger and they developed their talent, you know, it was really easy for white people to attend a Negro mm-hmm. Leagues game because they're a little bit more interesting, a little more exciting. You talk about clowns and you talk about pre-game <laughs> events and all that other thing for the same price that they were paying over there just to watch baseball. Boring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but it wasn't so easy for black people to attend white games. It was not socially acceptable. If mm-hmm. they did, they were in bad seats and so forth. So um, the money was already leaving white baseball and they needed to do something. So that was part of the reason why, you know, they started scouting specifically for someone they could bring over, you know, from the Negro Leagues. And by that point in the 40s, the laws were starting to change around the country. And so baseball changed too. And they did away with the color line. And, um, you know, that's when Jackie Robinson got involved. But it, it wasn't good. I mean, pretty much the impact was immediate on black baseball because as soon as that door opened, you know, there was a domino effect. You know, players kept getting recruited for the higher salaries, a little more prestige of being on a white team. So it just kind of took took the foundation basically out of the Negro League baseball teams. Um, you know, the Monarchs actually contributed the most players to white baseball of any other team. Did these black communities then embrace the teams where um, their players were going? Yes, they did, actually. Did they keep these celebrations and festivities no, on they Sunday? Did not. <laughs> <laughs> no, they did not. No, they were, they weren't. They were, they unfortunately did not keep that pre-game, <laughs> or maybe some version of it still exists somewhere. I'm not quite sure. But um, yes, the black residents um, community people, baseball players, started going to white games because they were allowed to at that point. And, um, to, and so it just kind of drained all the revenues away from the Negro Leagues, basically. And so by this, by the end, by the '60s, there were just a few teams left, and they were considered barnstorm teams, meaning they weren't really professional. Te- they were still professional teams, but they were playing more for exhibit purposes and not as a true competition as a professional team might. Gotcha. All right. Okay. So that's enough about baseball. Let's talk about this program, which is the, which is the artifact, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, how did the museum acquire this particular program? Well, I mean, as as I said before, it's um, it was socially difficult for black fans to attend white games and vice versa. So. Um, with that segregation going on, there was also, you know, people tend to forget that Mexican-Americans or Hispanics were in the country, too. And a lot of people don't realize that the Negro Leagues also contained Cubans and Mexican-Americans in them also because of their little bit darker mm-hmm. skin they could easily replace 
in some people's mind, um, black players, right? especially toward the end there. So um, this program was found at in a Mexican-American household. I don't know if you know who our representative, um, Delia Garcia, she's from Wichita, and um, the Lopez Rosilius family owns the oldest family-owned Mexican restaurant. Very good. Connie's Mexico Cafe in Wichita. Mm, I'll have to check that out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when um, her grandmother passed away, she generously donated oh, this right. program. So I'm assuming they don't know the full history of it, but we're assuming that someone in the family actually attended the game that occurred, we believe, in Wichita. And what's what kind of imagery is on this program? Oh, it's kind of cool. It's it, you know, it symbolizes that clown part of it. There is a a player with a huge baseball bat, and it looks like he's up to to the bat to play to um, get ready to swing. You can tell I don't know a lot about baseball, <laughs> so <laughs> I mean I'm not even gonna lie, but I do know. <laughs> um, and on the back of it, it's simple. Um, there is a picture of the team. Okay. Great. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Donna Ray, for stopping by. Okay, thank you. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Museum Director Bob Keckeisen. Hello. And Museum Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Howdy. Okay, for today's episode, we asked our listeners and Nikayla <laughs> to connect William Allen White to Douglas Adams, author of the science fiction comedy the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So, Bob, what can you tell us about Douglas Adams? Okay. Well, uh, as you mentioned, uh, he's best known for writing The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is a science fiction comedy series that began its life as a BBC radio series before becoming a trilogy of five books, which there's kind of a joke there. I guess he wrote the first three books as a trilogy and then added a fourth, so it became the trilogy part four, <laughs> the trilogy part five, <laughs> so five books. No quintilogy? Is that <laughs> even a word? <laughs> may not be. I don't know. It um, should be. But he I had just these, invented it. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, we'll call it that. We'll call it that. Quintilogy? Quintilo quintilogy? Oh, no. That's why no one says it. Uh, but he had this series of books. And they were later adapted into a TV series, uh, stage plays, uh, a comic book, a computer game, and in 2005 they made a feature film of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, the plots are pretty convoluted. <laughs> we don't have anywhere near the time to go into them here, but suffice it to say that uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy chronicles the adventures of Arthur Dent, who's kind of a hapless Englishman who escapes Earth's destruction with the aid of a guy named Ford Prefect, who Arthur believes to be an out-of-work actor, but who's really an alien from a small planet who was just here on Earth doing research um, as a researcher for The Hitchhiker's Guide <laughs> to the Galaxy. So right before the Earth is destroyed, he, um, um, Ford and Arthur are whisked off the Earth, and then they have these adventures. And it's by far Adam's best-known work, although he wrote a number of other books and television scripts. He was born on March 11, 1952, in Cambridge, England, and attended Brentwood Prep School, where he was um, the only creative writing student to be awarded a perfect score by their fairly formidable writing instructor. And he attended Cambridge University, 
while he was at university, he became a member of the very famous Footlights Student Comedy Act, which has uh, put out a lot of uh, English uh, comedians, Emma Thompson and Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie and all those people are parts of Footlights. So uh, he graduated from Cambridge in 1974. Some of his early writing began appearing on the BBC, and through the Footlights connections, he met Graham Chapman of Monty Python fame, and they formed a brief writing partnership and Adams even appeared in a couple of Monty Python skits. Uh, and he is one of only two people other than all the original Monty Python members to be given a writing credit on Monty, hmm. Pi on Monty Python because he did one of their skits. Busy guy. Yeah, so he's very creative. And in 1977, he came up with this idea for The Hitchhiker's Guide. And according to Adams, the idea for the title occurred to him when he was drunk in a field in Austria. <laughs> and he was gazing up at the stars, and he was holding a copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe. And he was, you know, gazing up at the stars and thought, oh, it'd be kind of cool if there was a guide to the galaxy or guide to the universe for hitchhikers. Um, he later admitted that he told that story so many times he's not even sure it's true. <laughs> but it's a great story. Sounds good, uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, as I mentioned, he went on to write other stories, including a couple of episodes of the Doctor Who TV series. Uh, he was also a fairly um, talented musician who was friends with several prominent bands, um, including members of Procol Harum and Pink Floyd. And he also described himself as a radical atheist and was also a very prominent environmental activist. But unfortunately, Adams died of a heart attack on May 11, 2001, at the age of 49. And many of his devoted followers commemorate his passing every May 25th by observing Towel Day. And they do this by carrying a towel around with them all day. And this is in reference... <laughs> I I, it's what, it is what it is. But uh, it's a reference to Chapter 3 of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where Adams wrote that a towel is about the most massively useful thing an interstellar hitchhiker can have. And then there's a long quote, but he goes on to talk about all the different things you can do with a towel. So... If you want to honor Douglas Adams next week, just uh, carry a towel with you wherever you go on May 25th. And Great. Be prepared to explain it. <laughs> Better read the book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to do. Thanks, Bob. And to Kayla, you have a solution? I do. And I think last week, or last episode, Bob challenged us to come up with a solution using, what, the number 42? Number 42, because that's the answer to the um, um, question of the universe. And yeah. it's 42. Sorry, I got nothing. <laughs> number 42. I saw one mention of the number 42, and I didn't understand it. So um, I guess I need to read the book. Um, but thankfully, Douglas Adams did have an affair. We're going scandalous today. Ooh. In the early 1980s with another British novelist named Sally Emerson. Um, Emerson was known for writing novels and poetry, but she um, also wrote articles for several publications, including the Washington Post. In 1933, the Post had been purchased by Eugene Mayer, who was a friend of William Allen White. And in 1935, their friendship influenced Meyer to give William Lindsay White a job as an editor. He lasted about two months. Um, originally, he said it was because he was trying to speak out too much. But later, he did say that it was because um, when he got jobs, everyone expected him to be his father, and he was not. Uh, oh, the pressure. So, the shadow of his father. Yeah, two whole months at that job with the Post. <laughs> so, there you go. Well, 
yay for infidelity. You know? Yeah, we, thank goodness, because it <laughs> saved me on this one. <laughs> we wouldn't have had a solution. So. Excellent. Bob, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? You bet. Well, our next episode will be uploaded on June 2nd, which also happens to be the birthday of Johnny Weissmuller, the Olympic gold medalist and actor famous for his portrayal of Tarzan. So there's your challenge next time. William Allen White to Johnny Weissmuller. Yeah, we should insert the uh, oh, Tarzan. Tarzan, yeah. 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 Anybody, can anybody do it? No. No. <laughs> I'm not even going to try. <laughs> that would be too embarrassing. <laughs> and actually, I, I read someplace that the, the original Tarzan yell is a combination of three voices that they oh, kind of mesh together. mesh together over it, so... I don't well, there I don't are three of us here, but yeah. I'm still not yeah. willing. <laughs> Maybe we can practice that for the next yeah. time. <laughs> okay, so if you think you can connect our favorite Kansan with our favorite tree swinger, just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcasts with an S. That concludes episode 107, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. To see photos of the program, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on podcasts. Our website is also the place to find out everything that's happening at the Kansas Historical Society. You can research our collections, check out a calendar of events, find directions to our library, museum, and historic sites, and even become a member. For more fun stuff, look us up on Facebook and become our friend. Or start following us on Twitter. Just search for Kansas Historical Society. Come back in two weeks when museum registrar Nikayla Zimmerman joins us to take a look at a service flag from the First World War. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Get back.